I'm Jerry Ratcliffe with ReducingCrime.com, a podcast featuring interviews with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers working to advance public safety. In this, the pilot episode of Reducing Crime, I talk with Police Chief Tom Nestell about the need for ongoing education in policing, innovation, building trust, working in different departments, and evidence-based policing. We cover quite a bit in half an hour. Learn more at ReducingCrime.com and on Twitter at underscore ReducingCrime. Tom started as a patrol officer with the SEPTA Transit Police in 1982 and then served with the Philadelphia Police Department for 22 years. He reached the rank of Staff Inspector before becoming Chief of Police for Upper Moreland Township in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. He has a Bachelor's Degree in Criminal Justice as well as Master's Degrees from St. Joseph's University, the United States Naval Postgraduate School and the University of Pennsylvania. In 2012, he returned to the SEPTA Police Department as Chief. I caught up with him in April 2018. As we started, Tom had just shared a policing anecdote, and while I can't share that with you because I would like to keep my job, we were still laughing about it when I hit record. Tom Nestel, the king of Twitter in Philadelphia. (laughs) Thanks for coming in to see me. How are you doing? It's my pleasure. Um, Hashtag cheese sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) You come from a long line of cops, but you're the first one to be killing it on Twitter. Yeah, uh, fourth generation. Um, yeah, my, uh, my father was a deputy commissioner, my grandfather was a, was a detective, and uh, my great-grandfather was a policeman all in Philadelphia, and, and now my son's a, a police officer in Philadelphia. As a family, are you getting the hang of it? Um, we're still trying it out. Uh, you know, we're seeing if we're any good at it. We, we sure do have a lot of us on police now, so, you know, there was a joke that we could probably staff our own district. There'll be a few places in the country you could have your own department. That's true. Very true. We, I can tell you that family parties are pretty lively. <laughs> How does it feel having a, a son in the job? It's great. I mean, you know that you've been doing this job, what, 35 years? 35 years, So, yeah. I mean, you know what he's getting into, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I go to every police academy graduation because... I think there's no better event than the graduation from the academy. Everybody in that building is happy. It may be the last time everybody's happy, but everybody is happy. And it was really weird, Jerry, when when I was sitting on the on the stage and looking out at the recruits like I do every three, six months, and this time my son was in the group. But proud too? Really was. Yeah, really great. was. Yeah. You know, you've got a family background going back all of these years, but you're really embracing all the new technology, all the new ideas. If nobody's following you, uh, you are the king of Twitter when it comes to policing in Philadelphia. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I think there are a lot of really good police professionals that, that are using Twitter, especially in Philadelphia. But I say to every young police officer and I say to new supervisors, the ones that, that do the best are the ones that adapt. You have to change. I remember telling a a sergeant who was retiring, uh, you're still in 1983, and it was 2017. You know, you can't be in 1983 and 2017. You have to to look at opportunities and you have to seize the the chance to to reach a bigger audience and to have a, a greater effect. 
So what you're saying is we can't just learn what we learn in the academy and then hope that's going to see us through 30 plus years. Yeah, yeah you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of education. That nine months in the academy is a tremendous base, a great foundation. But if you don't build on that, uh, then you fail. And especially when we think about people taking on different roles, getting into mid-level leadership positions, sergeants and lieutenants and captains. At that point, it's, it, there's nothing from the academy, to, there's not much at least from the academy that you can bring with you for that. Correct, because look, those jobs are problem solvers. We teach recruits the departmental policy, this is the way to do it. Don't think, follow the policy. Sergeants, lieutenants, captains, we're saying, here's the problem, solve it. Well, that's not in the policy. It's in education, it's in uh, networking, it's in creativity, it's way beyond that foundation. When you're looking for a supervisor, I mean, notwithstanding promotion systems and, and the relative limited control you have over that, but if you're looking for supervisors for particular roles, what are you looking for then? I have the opportunity to, to craft the promotional exam in a way that draws out the skill sets and characteristics that I'm looking for. So I'm going to ask a question, how would you solve this problem? And if you attack that problem the way we've always done it, you're not that person I'm looking for. Right. Uh, I'm looking for creativity. I'm looking for a unique way to address it. I'm looking for a, a deep dive with, with the gathering of data and, and using that information to come up with a great solution or at least try a solution. may not work, but I'm okay with trying something that doesn't work and going back to the, the drawing board and trying again. That's the kind of mid-level supervisor I'm looking for. Better to have tried and failed than not tried anything new at all? Absolutely. You know, the person that um, is just steering that ship and just moving forward it isn't the person I'm looking for. It's the person that says, hey, you know what, there might be a better route or there might be a better way to sail this ship. Let's, let's give it a try. That's the person I'm looking for. In some departments, though, anything that hints of risk and the failure that's potentially associated with it can be a little career limiting. You know, it, it depends on who you work for. If your boss is risk averse, um, you have to be careful. But, you know, another skill set is the, the ability to communicate and the ability to be a salesman. I can remember talking to a veteran grizzled deputy commissioner um, in Philadelphia who was more anti-technology than any person that's walked the face of the earth and pitching the idea of in-car video this grand new idea and he said absolutely not and I asked for an appointment you know it was a written proposal it was decently done I thought you know and it just came back with a disapproved uh, and then I asked for an appointment to see the boss and go see him and give a sales pitch well you know that's that's the kind of person I'm looking for in in my command that's the person that I want to work with and that, that's a key word is, or key phrase, work with. And somebody who doesn't give up as soon as they run into the simplest roadblock. There are always obstacles. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking for the person that says, okay, that's an obstacle. Let me back up and try another way. I uh, gave the sales pitch and, and, you know, the deputy who was a smart man in his own right. He may not have been Mr. Technology, but he was a smart man to realize, eh, you know what, there might be something here. Said, do your pilot program. And it was a tremendous, tremendous success. Politics aside, you know, it never came through. 
It, it never actually left beyond a one-year pilot program, but I got to do the pilot program. And pilot programs can be a great way to test something out. You, you're not wedded to it pushing it right the way through. Absolutely. But you don't seem to see enough pilot programs anywhere in policing right. anyway. And you know, pilot programs give you a model to use in the future to build off of. You know, you see how you did that pilot program, where the weaknesses and the strengths were, and you build upon it later when either the political will exists or you do a better salesmanship job. You've been using one of these technologies, Twitter, very effectively. How have you developed how you use it? Where are the benefits? If I was a mid-level commander, um, how have you found how to use it effectively? I think that part of the challenge of policing today is connecting with the public. We've lost some of our connection or belief or the default of oh, the police are okay is no longer the default. So I think that it's important that people understand that the police are actually human beings. They have a sense of humor, but they're also committed to what they're doing. And if you can do that in 140 characters or 280 now. We're now 280. Right. Yeah. We're loaded up. It can be a tremendously valuable connection to people that you would have never have connected before. And then what I've found is I get to use folks who don't like the police, don't trust the police, don't believe in the police, and say, hey, will you look at this policy draft for me and tell me what you think? and give me your input. And at least now I can, can go to a number of people who don't think like me. And that's always the problem with policing. You know, you go to people that think like you and say, hey, what do you think of this? I go to people who don't think like me and get their input and it makes the product so much more valuable. One of the uh, vignette authors in the Reducing Crime book is from Scotland. And he was talking about building relationships with communities in times when things are calm so that you can tap into those when things get a little bit feisty. Listen, it's an investment, you know, and that's what I've told my boss is that this isn't winning over people every day. It's building trust and gaining a, a reputation of telling the truth. You know, when things go bad, I tell the truth. I tweet and say, unfortunate circumstance today, we arrested a police officer. Before, you wouldn't have heard a, a police department saying they arrested a police officer. Or I had to call a complainant today who was unfairly treated by the police or treated disrespectfully by the police. Um, that's embarrassing. It should have never have happened. All, everybody in a uniform isn't saying, no, no, we're always right. Eh, we're, we're wrong sometimes and we want people to know. And that's still being supported by your troops for doing that? I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that my boss is very anxious about Twitter. Very anxious. And justifiably so. The wrong tweet can create a hailstorm. But you try to uh, say the right thing. You try to um, establish the right reputation. As far as the officers go, I think that officers always feel when, when you're talking about them in a positive light, they're all for it. When you're talking about an officer being arrested or making a mistake or me connecting with people who say excessive force is the norm for the police and me, me communicating, some officers are unhappy with that. It strikes me sometimes that there's almost an unwillingness to accept anything but perfect behavior all the time. And that's obviously never going to be the case when you have anywhere between 40 and 60 million interactions between police and the community every year. But also I think there's an issue of people are concerned about liability or the officers are concerned that they might get jammed up. But a lot of the time on the public side, it seems that 
a lot of, they're just happy with an apology. Yes. They just want an apology and it goes away at that point. Yeah, and I agree, I agree with that. I think that just being straightforward with them goes a long way. You know, instead of that form letter that's that you know protects the uh, the organization's liability and doesn't admit any guilt, I don't think that's as powerful as as me calling somebody up and saying, hey, you know what, I've watched that body camera video, we've interviewed the officer, um, you're right, uh, you shouldn't have been treated that way. And it doesn't provide any satisfaction for them. Right. And that's what that does. Absolutely. And at that point, it can often stop. Absolutely. And you actually say, prevent the issues occurring rather than just have them drag on and on. Right. And that person is going to tell 10 people about how this particular organization handled a complaint. You found body-worn cameras to be useful in this regard too? Yeah, I love them. You know, police officers are, well, I, I heard somebody say this once and it is so true. There are two things you can count on from a police officer. Uh, they hate the way things are and they hate change. Mm -hmm. So coming to a police organization and saying, hey, I have this great idea. Let's put cameras on you that'll record everything you're doing and saying, and um, that'll be a great idea. Yeah, um, police officers don't jump up and down and say, whew, you are a visionary, sir. <laughs> um, they say, you're, you're trying to jam us up. Yeah. Uh, this is just another attempt to arrest us and put us in jail and ruin our families. But what matters is how an organization uses those cameras. If they're using them to see if you were on lunch for 32 minutes or not wearing your hat or, you know, were, were off your beat for too long, well, yeah, it's not going to um, have much uh, credibility for the, for the program. But it also says a great deal about the organization at that point. Oh, it sure does. It sure does. And what, what we have found is, look, we use that video. If, if you're wrong, you're wrong. But if you're right, it's so powerful to be able to say, we're not even interviewing that officer. You know, we're going to do a thorough investigation of every complaint that we get. But if we look at the body camera video yeah. and find that that officer did or said nothing wrong, we're not going back to that officer and putting him in the position of saying, come to internal affairs, sit in that hot seat and, and prepare for a recorded um, interview questioning you about an incident that was reported because we know we didn't do anything wrong. So we're able to say, um, hey, Officer Smith, due to a, a complaint made by a citizen, an investigation was conducted in reference to blah, 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 blah. Um, as a result of review of the body camera, video and audio, um, you've been uh, cleared of any wrongdoing. Thank you for doing a good job. Nice. That just doesn't happen enough, where we, we, we get people jammed up quickly, but we don't do enough about really telling them they've yeah, done a great job. You know, it's like that, that final line of keep up the good work. Yeah. Like that hopefully will keep them going in the right direction. Look, morale is tough right now. You know, there's no denying that, that keeping morale up is a full-time job, but being able to, to tell individual officers, hey, you did fine here, forge forward. You know, last night I sent out an email to, to two officers and a sergeant that were involved in a contact with a citizen and they responded to resistance. We don't use force, we respond to resistance. Um, and I, I told them your response to resistance was phenomenal. It was, um, you know, controlled, it was appropriate, keep up the good work. And, and I hope that 
that they take that to heart and, and know that they have support. Queensland Police Service um, and Mike Newell, who's a, a Chief Inspector in Queensland Police Service, are doing some trials about actually using letters in different ways when we write to people. Uh, they're using it for everything from speeding cameras, about changing the word and tone of the letter to achieve more compliance and get different outcomes. It's these small little experiments and trials of different ways to do things to get better outcomes. And this sounds like a sort of internal police one to do exactly the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and look, you know, kudos to him to realizing that that, that can have a powerful effect on a, on a large group of people. You can't keep on doing things the way it's always been done. Your experiences generally in SEPTA are fascinating, but I'm also interested in how you've learned from the different places that you've been to, because you started in Philadelphia with over 6,000 police officers there. You went to Upper Moreland as the police chief, which was how many guys? Did 40. You have 40 mm -hmm. and fields. Yeah. And now you're back with the transit authority here in the Philadelphia region. Right. That's a range of experiences that most people really don't get exposed to. Yeah, and, and you know when you're when you're a young police officer or a supervisor and you look at, you know, the folks that are high in rank, you say, Oh man, that that person, that man or woman, they they know what's going on. I found out that I didn't know what was going on. I was a member of, you know, police department in the fifth largest city in the nation and and responsible for a ton of stuff. And I thought we were the best, you know, and that everything we did was was pretty much the right way. That, that's a common perspective for most is. people in most departments. It is. Until it truly they go is. outside and see yes. somewhere else. And you know, just a simple example was I, I, never, I never thought I would leave Philadelphia. I thought I would be there for 40 years and retire, you know, after 40 years of being with the Philadelphia Police As your Department. father before you. That's right. Uh, 43 for him. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but, but I was a guy who every five years changed. I either got promoted or transferred, but every five years I, I wanted change. So there came a time where where I had seized the opportunity to get college education and then get a master's degree. And I thought, I wonder if, if I would have a chance at getting a job outside of Philadelphia. I never thought of that. And uh, I see this advertisement, so I apply and, uh, and start going through the process, which, which was laborious. And the, the more steps you went through, the more I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm getting more excited about this idea. I know I went to do 40 years in Philadelphia because they know how to do everything, but maybe I can, maybe I can bring my brilliance to Upper Moreland and show them the light. <laughs> so I, I get hired and I go to Upper Moreland and, and I find out that I'm a smart guy and I know a lot sure. about policing, but damn, they do some things so much better than I had ever done in Philadelphia or thought about doing. And policing was totally different where we're chasing calls in Philadelphia. In Upper Moreland, the first day, the first day I'm, I'm chief, I go into the radio room and I say, hey, call a car in, I wanna go out for a ride. Well, who do you want us to call? I, I'm new, whoever's closest, get on the air and call one of the men. Who's available? Everybody's available. Officer comes in, I introduce myself to her, I said, I just wanna be your, your recorder, I'm gonna, sit in the uh, shotgun seat and let's go do police work. And she says, okay. Good for you, Chief. Yeah. We get in the car, drive around. We're driving down the street and she keys in on something. I'm a decorated police veteran of Philadelphia. I'm a good cop. 
There's nothing you could learn. There is no way I could miss criminal activity that this officer in Upper Moreland has just spotted. I have no idea what she's looking at. None. We drive down the block, we loop around, she pulls in about five, six doors down from what she was looking at, and she says, did you see that? And I said, sure did. <laughs> because the other thing you, you learn is you bluff, you know? I mean, so as we're walking, I said, listen. So it's just like teaching undergraduates. That's right, that's right. I said, listen, I, I have no idea what you saw. And she says, well, the sixth ha uh, house up from the corner has a white van parked in the driveway. I know the woman that lives there. She is like in her 70s. She doesn't have a van. I, I think something's going on. And I said, oh man, that's awesome. So as we're going down, a guy comes from, from a front door and she looks at him and she says, can I help you? And the guy says, oh no, I'm just giving out flyers. And he's got an arm full of flyers. And she says, great, you know, let me see your ID and gets ID and she says, is that your van? And he says, yes, ma'am, it is. I mean, that's phenomenal police work. Yep. Phenomenal police work. And that's not how I learned to do police work. I learned to, to respond to 911 calls. And I, I learned to be observant about something that was happening. But I hadn't learned how to catalog those observations over a period of time and to to know what belonged and what didn't belong because you're working in different places all the time and you don't have that, that connection with a block like she did. And some of that's a degree of necessity because you're working in a place where you can't call on dozens of troops to come and rescue you when things demand go south. Demand for services too. You, you know, in Philadelphia, the demand for services are overwhelming. They don't have enough police officers to handle all the demand for services. Or social workers or mental health Absolutely. respondents. Whereas in Upper Moreland, the demand for services, um, they have enough people to handle it. So now when the police respond, they're doing so much more. You know, they're doing that neighborhood survey to see if anybody saw anything. They're processing a, a scene as a uniformed police officer. Or even more amazing to me was they're putting on the case as the assistant district attorney for the preliminary hearing. I, I was in awe. You know, I, I said, this is a police officer who is serving as the, um, the prosecutor for the first level of the case. I, I couldn't imagine doing that in Philadelphia. Do you think then that there is almost a, should be almost a requirement for senior command positions that people have to experience other departments? Yes. I feel that my greatest growth occurred when I left. I learned a lot in Philadelphia and, and I wouldn't change anything that I did, but the variety of policing that I've now been experienced to, I think has made me a better, better police commander and a better at, at problem solving than I would have been if I had stayed in Philadelphia for 40 years. You talked about your education. How has your education contributed to value for you as a leader, either at mid-level or, because I know you started um, when you were at mid-level positions here in Philadelphia or when you took over the role as a police chief? Uh, out of high school, I, I went to college for a couple semesters and, you know, majored in basketball and went on the police department, you know, which is all I wanted to do. I was always 
a creative thinker and always interested in in problem solving in a different way, you know, and and I loved being a police officer and as a sergeant I had ideas, you know, and and when you put your ideas on You'd paper. You be careful with those now. Well, they're dangerous tools. Yep. You know, they're weapons and and I I would send the ideas into my superiors and say, "Man, uh, you know what? This is a great idea. I'll, I'll bet you they'll go for it." And and they they didn't go for it. So I'm thinking, wow, well, why why is that? Is it just bad timing? Is it a bad idea? Is it the development of the idea? Am I not as good as I think I am? So I thought, you know what? What makes a an idea from someone has more value when that person has experience and education. It's just the nature of the beast, whether you agree with it or not. Experience and education make the the value of the idea become and you need both better. you do you do experience alone isn't sufficient to get there I agree because a lot of the times you know you can you can meet people with 30 years in the job but if they've never left that department yes. they've never supplemented it with an education that might provide a different perspective to some degree they don't have 30 years of experience they have yeah. one year of experience 30 times yeah and you know as as a young sergeant or young lieutenant um, I was pretty confident I knew what I was doing as a chief, I'm pretty confident that I need a lot of people to help me, that I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did as a sergeant and lieutenant. And I look to other people to give me guidance and input and, and ideas. The education truly helped me formulate my ideas better, be more comprehensive in the development of those ideas, and certainly provided me with exposure to people and ideas that that I would have never have had. You talked about the value of confidence, at least, in terms of education and experience. A lot of evidence-based policing, however, is driven by a foundation of doubt, driven by, we don't really know whether this works, and that's the driving force for, let's try different ways of doing it and evaluate to see where we get to. Doubt seems to be the thing that's often lacking in so many senior police commanders. Yeah, and, and I think that those are the folks who um, actually do the best are the ones that say, did it really work? That program that we tried, we're waving a flag and saying success and we're leaving, but was it really successful? Come on in here, you know, and take a look at what we did and tell me, did this work? I think those are the people that are the most successful. I see a lot of people, however, especially at things like IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, the larger PERF forums, Police Executive Research Forums, that don't seem to have that degree of questioning. They don't have that doubt. There's a lot of confidence, but I, I don't see as many people as perhaps should be asking those types of questions. Yeah, and I don't know, you know, I think sometimes when you're in that, that arena, the, the natural inclination is to sit tall, puff out your chest and say, well, listen to what I have to say. I think that if you take uh, some of those most confident and most successful executives out of that forum and say, hey, what do you think about this, this, and this? They go, ooh, you know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Let's take, you know, these ideas and let's try this. I don't think they're as as confident or all-knowing um, when, you, when you separate them from the herd. That's an interesting observation because then it suggests if we're to 
make more advances with evidence-based policing, we have to think about the mechanism by which we introduce it to people who are in leadership positions. Yes. And in, you know, even in that, that mid-level arena, when I went to Upper Moreland and said, um, let's look at auto accidents, let's, let's do a data-driven approach on reducing crashes in Upper Moreland, in the supervisor's meeting, I was guffawed. You know, it was like, oh, it happens because the roads aren't big enough and there's lots of traffic. I mean, what, what else do you need to know? But when you separate those supervisors and sit down one-on-one and say, what do you think? Oh, well, I think, you know, we need to look at what time of day it's occurring. Maybe there's a causation factor we can focus on. You know, and it's interesting that when you separate them, they, they come up with more creative thinking. What you're hinting at there is this culture surrounding larger groups of officers. Yeah. It's almost as if that there is this kind of culture of confidence, this culture of knowledge and experience that we can only break down if we pull people out of that in smaller groups? Yeah, and uh, I mean, the herd acts differently than the individual. Um, It's the same thing with, you know, people in the street. You know, if there's a huge violent occurrence, uh, if it's a large crowd, they're going to act differently than one person. I do. I think that in order to, to get people to be thinking in, in that doubting way, uh, you have to separate them and say, well, do you know the answers? And how would we get to those answers? What method would you suggest? Part of evidence-based policing is also being aware of the research literature and the studies that are going on and around. And that seems to be almost the antithesis of police culture and policing. How difficult is that hurdle to overcome? Well, that's, that's still a big hurdle. And I think it's because of the way um, that journal articles are written and that research is presented. And I'm not saying that police officers are stupid. I'm saying that every group speaks in a different language. And if you take the academic language and try to um, hand it to a police officer and say, oh man, this is quality stuff, read this. They're gonna read you know, the first two paragraphs and then say, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, like, give me the meat, to, meat and potatoes. I, I wanna know what the problem is and what solution you came Give me up the with. conclusion before you <laughs> give me the rest that's of the right. stuff. Flip the you, whole journal article right. in reverse yeah. so I can just read the, right. read yeah. the conclusion. I don't wanna see your, your scientific method. You know, what, what are you talking about? Uh, I, I think that it's the same thing as, you know, when you read a narrative from a cop, it's an interesting language that if you're not a cop, you go, why does he talk that way? So it is being able to communicate successfully in the language of the group. Sarah Thornton, who's a former chief constable from one of the larger British forces, said policing's the only field where the term clever isn't a compliment. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. How do we overcome, to some degree, that's almost that, that sort of hint of anti-intellectualism that, 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 that is in a lot of police services? Yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, because you're well-educated, and I know you uh, spent some time in a PhD program as yeah. well. And, and I like education. There are an awful lot of police officers that have no desire to, to get a college education or to get a graduate education. Which is okay. Which is okay. 
I just think that we need to we need to connect with them in a different way. You know, I, I think I think you came up with with a great method with with the certificate model. You know, you, you take some of those some of those classes that they're most likely to be interested in, and say, "Why don't you check this out?" I think that if we we gave value to that type of learning, then more police officers would would become involved in in academia in that route. You know, in in my department, I've uh, I've been there five years, and, and I've always wanted to have block training, you know, where two hours of training was spent on a topic, and we just can't get it off the ground, you know, because we're busy doing policing. So maybe the answer is looking at academic partners to come up with this block-type training on topics that intertwine academic theory with practical knowledge, and then use that as uh, checkboxes for assignment. You know, you want to be a detective. Here are the elements of learning that, that we'd like you to accomplish before becoming a detective. You want to do this assignment. Here are the elements of learning. And have these different types of block training that, um, that can be done by people who are much better at training than we are. There are some arguments for the notion that often we're too busy doing the job to learn how to do the job better. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what, something I learned at this advanced age is that as a, as a 25-year-old police officer in the elite highway patrol, training just wasn't my priority. I was interested in going out and, and being a police officer in the middle of the night, you know, in the roughest neighborhoods and doing the job. It's different today. Every po young police officer I talk to says, love more training you know and my immediate response is okay like in what I don't know I don't know but I'd love more training it too often focuses just on firearm use and legal updates though. yeah and, and and look I think legal updates are very important sure I don't think firearms use is frankly how many of us use firearms I think that um, deadly force decision-making is is a major and we do that that's one thing we, we do successfully is through the firearms uh, simulator, we do deadly force decision making on a regular basis. But other things, you know, that, that cops are just interested in, in learning about. I'm fascinated by the, by the fact that it seems to have changed, where the young officers in their 20s back in my day we're not interested in training, and even the yearly certification training, you, we're all in December. It was all about eye rolling. Getting it done, right. Yep. Um, where today, they, they seem to really be interested in, in having training opportunities. Is there a need for us to change the professional development model as we proceed through our careers? Absolutely, just like everything else. Well, as they do in the medical field. You, yes. You can't get by with the training from five years ago. That's you right. need to be continually updating yeah. in your professional practice. You know, you can't count on that nine months that, that you went through in, in 1982. For me, it was 1984. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting old, mate. We're getting old. Here we are. <laughs> Tom, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Jerry. That was episode one of Reducing Crime, recorded in April 2018. You can find more podcasts like this at reducingcrime.com and wherever you found this. New podcasts are announced on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Don't forget the underscore. Be safe and best of luck.